before I begin my message in earnest, I've got two books that are both enormously helpful for what I'm going to be preaching on. And there's going to be a fair amount of information in my message. And if you're like, shoot, I can't remember that, but I'm interested. Um, This book is called uh, Seven Reasons Why You Should Trust the Bible. And I will give it to you today for free. It's yours. Uh, It's written by Erwin Lutzer, who was my pastor when we lived in Chicago for a couple of years. It's a fantastic book. Um, The other book that I've got with me uh, is called uh, Why Should I Trust the Bible? Um, This one is a little bit more like something you might read in college. Uh, It's a little bit challenging, but it's got fantastic history, great information, uh, and when I bought it, I bought two copies. So if if you're interested and curious about this, you can have this today. Just come see me after the service, and it's yours. Everyone should have a piece of chocolate, and uh, I would encourage you, go ahead and open this. It honestly feels weird to do this, so I just feel like I need to say, this is not communion. Here's what I want you to do, right? Everybody's thinking it. This is not in memory of anything, and yet at the same time, it is profoundly biblical, as I will demonstrate in just a minute. Um, No spiritual trick. Sometimes food can lead your heart in worship, and so as you enjoy this, praise God that he made chocolate and sugar and all kinds of good things. Let's eat it. My mom always taught me, don't talk with your mouth full. So I feel like I should take a minute. I know. (laughs) Scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Psalms. I'm going to be reading verses 97 through 104 from Psalm 119. This psalm is like a love poem to God about the Bible. We're just going to read a small portion of it this morning. It's a a psalm that's so long, it's actually longer than some of the books of the Bible. And it describes the great benefit and blessing of the word of God to his people. So Psalm 119, starting in verse 97. The writer says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Particularly, Verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. 
I don't go to the store and eat honey for candy, but I do like chocolate. And if you've enjoyed the sweetness of chocolate, you have a taste of how good God's word is for your soul. There's one other verse I want to point to. It says almost the exact same thing. It's in the book of Proverbs. One of my favorite Proverbs, very similar to this, is Proverbs 24, verse 13. Proverbs 24, verse 13. And I'm going to be mentioning a fair amount of scripture if it seems like a lot, you've got a couple options. Uh, you can jot down some references and look them up later. You can re-watch this sermon on YouTube if that's something that's helpful for you. Uh, but my passion here is to show that the, the Word of God does teach what I am preaching to you this morning. And so I want to show how much of this comes from the Word of God and give a little bit of history today. Proverbs 24 verse 13 says, My son, or it could say my daughter, Eat honey, for it is good. And the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. In other words, son, daughter, enjoy the good things that God has given you. And know this, verse 14, know that wisdom is such to your soul. If you find it, there will be a future and your hope will not be cut off. It's a great command to be told, eat honey. Or I, in the margins of my Bible, I, I wrote, in a, and I pray that someday my kids are going to read all these notes that I write in the margins. But I wrote, ice cream also works. The good things that we enjoy when we eat are a message from God that his word is good and sweet to our soul. We need that message because the Bible's a big book and it's hard to understand. And sometimes it says things that trouble us or that challenge us or that confront us. So if reading the Bible were as enjoyable as eating chocolate, we wouldn't need to be told. But God in his kindness gives us these rich and good and beautiful experiences and says, I love you, and I'm loving you with my word. And even when it's hard to understand, and even when it challenges you and convicts you and makes you weep, this book is like chocolate for your soul. It is so good for you. You will be blessed as you know it and as you put it into practice. So, we ate our chocolate this morning. The good news is, if the rest of my message is terrible, you have gotten something out of the service already. Here's my big idea, okay? I'm going to be giving you basically three points this morning. My big idea is that God's good gifts, like chocolate, point us to the goodness of his word. I'm going to say that again. That's the main point. What did the pastor talk about this morning? This is what I'm talking about. God's good gifts, like chocolate, point us to the goodness of of his word. The word of God is sweet to your soul, even when it's difficult to understand, even when it's frustrating, and in fact, perhaps especially then. And I want to actually lean into this metaphor of it being like chocolate a little bit in a couple of different ways that might seem surprising and strange and weird. As I was talking to the, to the group that I studied with on Wednesday mornings, I was like, guys, am I beating this to death? Is this, is this awful? And they kept laughing. So I'm hoping that that was a sign that it'll be beneficial for the whole church. Sometimes, 
Sometimes the Bible does not seem sweet. And I want to ask you this. Do you remember the first time somebody ever gave you dark chocolate? Really dark chocolate? Or I remember actually the first time, it wasn't like somebody's like, this is great, delicious chocolate. I remember the first time I had baking cocoa. Like, and I, I always asked my mom, like, can I have some of that? And she was like, you're not going to like it. And I was like, it's chocolate. And, and then she let me try a little bit. And I was like, you're right, it's terrible. A lot of people who are chocolate fans, it seems like there's like a progression where we all started on Hershey's, and that's the stuff that everybody likes. Then you try Hershey's Dark, and that's like 55% cocoa, and it seems dark compared to milk chocolate, and you're like, oh, that's a little different, that's pretty good. And then you go and get like a lint bar that's 90% cocoa, and you're like, how do people eat this? What I want to suggest to you today is there are going to be parts of the Bible that are sweet to your soul. They need no explanation. They're beautiful. They seem obviously true. Like in 1 John, when John tells us twice, not once, but twice, that God is love and that God has demonstrated his love for you. I've never heard of anyone saying, man, I wish that weren't true. No, it's sweet. It's good. It's encouraging. It's comforting. It's helpful to know that the God of the universe that spoke the world into existence is a God who loves you. And yet there are things within the scriptures that make us just scratch our heads. Some of it's culturally weird. We live thousands of years from the time when the people in the Bible lived, and we don't always understand their customs and their ways, and things that would not have seemed strange to them seem very strange to us. And so the more you read the scriptures, and sometimes you read about God's judgment on people, and it seems like God is unfair. And what I want to say is that even those passages, and in fact, sometimes especially those passages, are very good for your soul. But you just took a bite out of some 90% cocoa. And it's, it's not that it's an acquired taste. It's that you're so used to sugar, you, you don't actually know the chocolate and enjoy the chocolate yet but that all of God's word is good for you. For most of us, eating chocolate is easy. And for many of us, we don't think much about it. It's just a simple, sweet pleasure. I should maybe mention, Proverbs also says, you're not supposed to go crazy eating honey, that it will make you sick. Uh, So it's not like a, a blank check for eating however much you want or whatever. One of the goofy things that I like to do, uh, and, and you find articles like this in, in the Wall Street Journal that I read all the time. A couple weeks ago, I read one in the New York Times. People love to understand people that make it to 100 and older. Like, how did they do it? You know, what did they eat? Did they exercise? What are their habits like? And, and I especially love it when you read about the people that did everything wrong and they still live to be like 100. There's a guy that was in the South. I was reading about two different people. This is not exactly straight for my message, but, but he smoked cigars and drank every day, and he lived to be over 100. So all the people that do those things are like, look, see, it's fine. One of my you know, things that I was like, oh, we should do this, is I heard about a lady that she ate a little bit of chocolate every single day, every single day, and she lived to be like 105. And I thought, man, that's, you know, hey, I don't know why, but maybe it helped. And and I want to encourage you, if you're like me and you're like, man, that's kind of cool. You know, I want to live a long time. I've always felt like living to 100, it's kind of like turning 10. It's like you get that extra digit. 
and I've just always thought it'd be great. I, you know, I, I remember my 10th birthday being so excited. I'm, like, I'm in double digits now. Yes. Well, it, like you don't get to do that again unless you've lived to be 100. So I've always thought like, man, I just want to live to be 100 and, and, and get that extra digit. It'd be fantastic. So I enjoy goofy articles like this. And, and so imagine you kind of grab that principle and you're like, okay, I'm going to have a little bit of chocolate every single day. Well, then the question becomes, what counts as chocolate? If I eat a, a white chocolate truffle every day, does it, will it work? I'm, it's like, Scott's like, no, it's not going to work, man. Just find a different kind. Well, well why not? Do I, do, is milk chocolate okay? Is, is that going to be good enough? Do I, do I have to have the, the 90% cocoa? Like, I guarantee that lady, they didn't even make 90% cocoa when that lady was eating it every day. So what counts as the kind of chocolate that's good for your body? And if I think about that in terms of the word of God, the question then becomes, what counts as the word of God that's sweet to my soul? In other words, how do I know that the things that are in this book really are from God? Which ones should I listen to? And one of the things is I was talking to my, my, my group of, of guys on Wednesday morning, uh, we were looking at 1 Timothy, which is the book that I'm going to be preaching on today. Uh, we're going to cover two verses. And it begins where Paul says that he is an apostle, and he, he gives his credentials to write with authority to young Timothy. And one of the guys said, hey, how, like, how do we, it seems weird, he's like patting his resume, how do we know that this letter is really from Paul? Which is a good question. A lot of people ask that question, but we don't always ask that question in church. And so the question is, why is 1 Timothy really even in our Bible? What gives somebody the authority to write a book and then all of a sudden the church says, this is the word of God that we must listen to and obey and put into practice? And it's a good question and it's a healthy question. It's not a question that everyone cares about. For some people, you can lose your faith over this. For other people, you go, meh, I mean, my mama gave me this Bible and it was good enough for her and, and it's good enough for me. And if that's you, I want to say, God bless you. Some of the things that I'm going to say this morning, they're not going to encourage or help you. So I'm not really talking to you. You're like the person that thoughtlessly enjoys and eats chocolate without asking any of those questions like, do I have to eat dark chocolate? You just enjoy the chocolate because it's good and it blesses you. That's fine. But not everyone is there. Some people kind of obsess over different health things. And they're like, you know, you can read... I love, well, I don't love, I probably scroll on my phone too much. Just random headlines, like what's there, what, what's out there. I know you see these studies, like 100% of chocolate eaters die, which is true. And then doctors say there might be a connection. So then you're like, oh, shoot, like am I eating the wrong chocolate? Like what, what, what? And so you start reassessing, like does this work? Is this right? And spiritually, you can find people on YouTube that lose their faith that say, hey, you know, we have no guarantee that the Gospels were written by people that knew Jesus. There are other Gospels that we should maybe consider, and the early church didn't believe in the Bible that you have today, and all kinds of things can begin to cause you to question and doubt. And I want to say, number one, these are good questions. There's nothing wrong with asking an honest question. I remember when I was about 10 years old, I asked my dad, I said, Dad, how do, how do we know that we have the right books in our Bible? Even some Christians disagree, you, you know, Catholics have a couple extra books and, and, and the Eastern Orthodox have a couple extra. Um, how, do, how do we know? 
And so if you're the kind of person that really wants to know that, I'm not going to be able to be super detailed today because uh, I've only got about 35 minutes total. And, and this is literally a topic that people write very long books about. Uh, so if you're like, man, that's the question that I want answered, I'm going to take an easy way out. I'm going to say, you're the person that needs this book. Just come up to me afterwards and be like, I want that book. And if I need more, I'll get more. But it's a good question. And I'm thankful that when I asked that to my dad, he didn't say, just trust me. He gave me an essay to read, and it was the start of me trying to understand my faith and trying to understand why things are the way they are in the church today. And so this morning, I want to do a little bit of, why is 1 Timothy in the Bible? Why do we believe it's inspired scripture? How did we get this Bible? How did we decide that these 66 letters and histories and prophecies that comprise the Bible, how do we decide that they all should go between the covers of our Bibles? Why these books and no others? And so this morning, my first point is that the Word of God is sweet, but we have to actually define what the Word of God is. And that happens in a couple of ways. First, if you just read what's there, before we consider anything else, the Bible very obviously claims that it comes from God, and it does this in a number of ways. I, I just, this morning in my little Bible software, as I was putting some finishing touches on my, I did one search, and you can do this in a number of different ways, but I did one search that says, the word of the Lord. And what that phrase means is, it's the word that God spoke. And in the Bible, that phrase occurs about 245 times. The Bible itself claims to be spoken by God. And, and you can also look for other phrases like, the Lord said, and I didn't even do that search, and it's hundreds of times. Uh, this week, as I was reading my devotions, I'm reading the book of Numbers, and it describes how Moses would go into the tabernacle, and the Lord appeared before him above the Ark of the Covenant, and the scripture says in Numbers, the Lord spoke and Moses heard the voice of the Lord as he was speaking to him. It says it three times in the same verse. It's like he wants to make it painfully obvious. God is actually speaking with words that Moses could hear. And so, number one, how do we know that this book comes from God? Well, whether you believe it or not, the book claims to have come from God. So start there. Ask yourself, do you believe that this is true or not? Maybe you will, maybe you won't. I, you know, I, I want to persuade you that it is from the Lord, but start with the fact that the book claims to be from God and take that claim seriously. Not only that, there are also really specific places in the Bible that describe this truth. And I'm going to give you two of them. For some of you, these might be familiar verses. For others, maybe it's the first time you've heard this. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the person of God or the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul is writing a second letter to Timothy, not the one that we're going through, but he's writing a second letter to Timothy, and he says all of Scripture is breathed out by God. It starts with a divine author, and it's all good for you. Peter, in the, in the second letter that he wrote for the church, says this in, in 2 Peter 1.21, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, 
But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And you can see that again and again and again. Genesis to Revelation as God moves and speaks. Sometimes the prophets don't like his message. And they're honest with him about that. But the message comes from God, not from the person communicating it. So the first point here is the book claims to be inspired by God. Not only that, the second piece of that is Jesus. What did Jesus think about the Bible? And if you are a follower of Jesus, you ought to agree with him about how he treated the word and how he handled the word. You can go really deep with what did Jesus think about the Bible, and you can look at all the ways that he quoted it. You can look at how when he was tempted by the devil in Matthew chapter 4, you can read that story. You can see how he quoted scripture and showed Satan he needed to obey the word of God rather than fall into the temptation that the devil was laying before him. And he fought that temptation by knowing the word. He actually quotes Deuteronomy. Jesus loved the book of Deuteronomy, one of the books that we have a hard time with. Jesus loved it. And not only that, he quotes the Psalms. He quotes from the books that are in our Bible. So you can look at the example of Jesus, but you can also listen to this very carefully. I'm going to give you part of a verse in John chapter 10. For the sake of time, I'm only going to tell you, Jesus is in the middle of an argument with the Pharisees, and he quotes scripture, and then he says this thing. He says, the scripture cannot be broken. The scripture cannot be broken. God's word cannot be false. Scripture cannot be broken. Jesus believed that. If you are a follower of Jesus, you ought to agree with him about that. Not only that, he attributes it to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So in Mark chapter 12, verse 36, Mark chapter 12, verse 36, Jesus quotes a psalm that David wrote, and he says, David, who was writing in the Holy Spirit, said, and as he does that, he's saying, look, you might admire David as a king, But when he was writing, he wasn't just writing as a person. He was writing in the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus' opinion of the Psalms of David was that they were ultimately written by the Holy Spirit. They were ultimately written by God. And he believed that they could not be broken, that what God predicted in the future would happen. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you can be encouraged to know when you read your Bible, you're believing the same thing that Jesus believed as you treat it as the word of God to help you ward off temptation, to help you know what you ought to do in obedience to the Lord. Jesus also refers to the law, which includes the first five books of the Bible. Uh, He refers to the prophets, guys like Isaiah and Zechariah and, and all of the books that have a name attached to them, almost all of them. He refers to the writings. He refers to Job as a historical person. So you carefully study how Jesus handled the scripture. If you're a believer in Jesus, let Jesus teach you what to think of the Bible. So my first point is that the book claims to be written by God. My second point is that Jesus teaches and demonstrates faith in it as the word of God. And if you know Jesus and love Jesus, and if you understand his love for you, you ought to have a high view of scripture the same way Jesus did. Not only that, the question then becomes, okay, so are these 66 books the right 66 books? Um, And if you have that question, man, we can talk about it a little bit later. The one thing I'll say about it today is that 
every church universally agrees that these 66 books should be in the Bible. We all agree on that. There are some churches that have a few more, and we can talk about that later if you want. I'm not going to deal with it right now. Uh, But I will say this, the church universally believes that these are the 66 books of the Bible, and we ought to treat them as such. Uh, It's significant in thinking about Jesus. Jesus never quotes from the books that we do not include in our Bible, And, and so that's part of why I would say, man, probably not. They might be good and helpful to read, but Jesus didn't use them and didn't seem to treat them as scripture, and so I don't either. Uh, I have good friends that do, and I'm not bashing anybody, but just telling you why I believe this and why I think that you should too. If you want more information about that, we, we talk about it later. But the question becomes, how did Jesus and the apostles and the writers of the New Testament use the Old Testament And how did the church use what we now know as the New Testament? Did they treat it as the word of God? And so you can find these little little treasures in the Bible, like Paul in 1 Timothy 5.18. We're going to see this in a couple of weeks when we get to 1 Timothy 5. But in 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul says this, For Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. That's a quotation from Deuteronomy. And... The laborer deserves his wages. That's a quotation from Jesus as recorded in Matthew's gospel. So what you see Paul doing is he takes something that everybody agrees is scripture and he puts the words of Jesus as recorded in the gospels right next to it and says, for the scripture says. In other words, very early on, Paul is treating the gospels on the same level of inspired scripture as the word of God, as Deuteronomy, which had been treated as scripture for 2,000 years by that point. So Paul quotes the New Testament. Not only that, Peter, this is a, a verse from one of Peter's letters, and he's describing something Paul says. This Peter, and he says, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. Okay, so Paul says God's patience in this life. As sometimes you suffer and bad things happen, God is patiently waiting for people to repent. He loves you. He's patient. That's good. Peter is saying Paul agrees with this idea. Verse 16, Peter says, Paul agrees with this idea in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. It's true of a lot of Paul's letters. And he says, ignorant and unstable people twist these things to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So Peter has a view, the scriptures are the word of God. And then he says that Paul writes his letters... And that people misunderstand them and twist them the same way they do the other scriptures. In other words, Peter's perspective on Paul's letters is that they are the inspired word of God. And so if Paul wrote a letter to a church as the word of God, they treated it just like they treated Deuteronomy, just like they treated Genesis, just like they treated the things that David wrote that God preserved for us. And so if the first point is the book claims to be written by God, and the second point is that Jesus treated it as the word of God, the third point is the writers of the New Testament treated the New Testament as the word of God when they talked about it. 
You can read throughout the New Testament, almost every book within the Old Testament is quoted or referenced by the New Testament. In fact, somewhere around 10% of the New Testament, maybe more, is straight quotations of the Old Testament. I saw a goofy little meme that one of my pastor friends posted of two people sitting in a room where they're taking a test, right? And the one guy is labeled as Isaiah, and the other guy is labeled as Revelation, and you see Revelation copying all the answers from Isaiah, because what he's doing is he pulls so much straight from Isaiah that it's as if he's cheating and getting the answers by reading the Old Testament. And Revelation is giving you God's truth in the New Testament and just saying, hey, this is what God said in the Old Testament. He's keeping all his promises. You can trust it. And so the book hangs together as the writers of the New Testament look at the Old Testament as the word of God. But how do you assess whether the New Testament is the word of God? Well, I would say you do the same thing. You just take it a step further in church history. You look at how did the early church treat the New Testament? And and you may say, well, how can you even do that? Well, guys, they wrote down sermons, which is crazy, but they did. You can read ancient Christian sermons, and you can see them doing the same thing, where they will preach from the Old Testament and the New Testament at the exact same time. I remember the first time I read a guy, he's got kind of a funny name, but, but a guy by the name of Polycarp, he wrote a letter to the Philippians about 50 years after Paul wrote a letter to the Philippians. Polycarp's this ancient pastor. He studied under the Apostle John, and Polycarp, in his writings, it's just this beautiful mixture of the Old Testament, which everybody recognizes as the Word of God, and the New Testament, including Paul's letters and Peter's letters and the Gospels, and he's treating all of it like Scripture, saying, Church, this is what's true. This is what you need to know. And you can go read Polycarp. I got a copy of him in my office. You can even find some of it online. So if you want to know, like, what did the early church think about the Bible? Look at their sermons. Look at their letters. See what they quoted. See how they quoted it. And in fact, I want to give you a couple quotations. There's a guy named Clement of Rome. Clement of Rome. He dies in 100 AD. Okay, so think about the history for just a minute, okay? Jesus is crucified and resurrected about the year 33 AD. So 100 AD is about 70 years after that, and Clement died in 70 AD. This means he's rubbing shoulders with Peter and Paul. This means he learned what's true from people who knew Jesus. And Clement of Rome says this. Listen to this. This is his opinion of the Bible. Let us act accordingly to that which is written. For the Holy Spirit saith, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Look carefully into the scriptures, which are the true utterances of the Holy Spirit. Now he's one of the earliest church fathers after somebody like Peter and Paul. And this is his view of the Bible, that it's the word of God. And he quotes Paul, he quotes 1 Timothy and treats it as the word of God for the entire church, not just one unique church in Ephesus, but that all the church would learn from it and put it into practice. Justin Martyr, another early Christian apologist, another early Christian pastor and teacher, he was born the same year approximately that Clement of Rome died. So he's born about 100 AD. This is what he says about the Bible. When you hear the utterances of the prophets spoken as it were personally, you must not suppose that they are spoken by the inspired men themselves, 
but by the divine word who moves them. In other words, Justin believes that the word of God is ultimately spoken by God himself. And I'm going to give you one more. Irenaeus is an amazing pastor. Uh, He's born in 130 AD. Again, all of this, you know, I don't know. How many of you have, have ever read like Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code? It's, it's an entertaining book. Uh, it, there was, okay, yeah. So, I mean, and we can all admit it was a pretty entertaining book, right? Um, Dan Brown really kind of popularized this idea that the, the Council of uh, Nicaea in 325, Constantine told the church what books they had to include. Guys, these pastors that are quoting the New Testament and refuting false teachers at the same time, they all lived 250 years before Nicaea. It, it doesn't make sense. It, I mean, it makes for a great novel, but historically, it's just not true that some emperor just decided what books are there. And if you do careful history, you know that this is true. So I'm going to give you one more. Irenaeus, just a great pastor. He, he taught a lot about how Jesus truly is the Son of God. And, and this is what Irenaeus says about the Scriptures. He's born in 130 AD, so again, he's 2nd century. The Scriptures are indeed perfect, since they were spoken by the Word of God, meaning Jesus, and by His Spirit. So again, there's testimony from the early church about believing that the scripture is the divinely inspired word of God. You might wonder, well, well, how did they decide what was in the Bible? Okay, obviously they believe it's inspired, but how did they decide what's in the Bible? I'm going to give you a couple criteria, and we're going to move kind of quickly here, but number one, they wanted to know who wrote the book, okay? Uh, And maybe the best way to understand is, like, it's easy to think of the Bible as one book, but it's really 66 smaller books, and you can see those listed in the index, And they cared deeply about where those books came from. It needed to be written, speaking of the New Testament, it needed to be written by a witness of the resurrection. And if it was written by one of Jesus' apostles, one of the 12 men that Jesus chose and trained, or the apostle Paul, who Jesus chose after the resurrection, or if it was written by someone who worked closely with an apostle, and if God used it in the entire church, They were very likely to believe that it was the word of God and to treat it like the word of God. So the question of who wrote it is really big. It's not the only thing that they think about. There's the book of Hebrews that some people think Paul wrote. A lot of people don't think that he wrote it. Uh, And honestly, the truth is we're not sure. Uh, There's also the gospels. They all have names attached to them, but originally they didn't. And so who wrote the gospels? I think Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John wrote the gospels. Um, If you're curious about that, man, I've got some good stuff I can show you on YouTube. I've got some good books that I can give you. But authorship matters mattered a lot. Not only authorship, sharing the letter with other churches. Okay, so I'm going to read you a verse from Colossians. Sometimes Paul wrote letters to specific people in specific places that didn't get copied, that didn't get shared, that aren't part of the Bible. And so you can see one of those in this verse. So Colossians 4.16. Paul says to Colossians, which is in our Bible, when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. So true scripture was passed around for every church, not just one church, not just one place. True scripture was inspired by God for all of his people. And so Paul is telling the Colossians, make sure that you copy this letter and send it to your neighboring church. But then he says this, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. 
Now, some people actually think that maybe that that's the letter, that maybe that's Ephesians, because Ephesians originally didn't have a title on it, and so they think maybe that we actually do have that in our Bible, but I tend to think that the letter from Laodicea just was not preserved. I don't think we have it. I think Paul did write things that are not included in the Bible, and that's okay. The other prophets in the Old Testament wrote things that God didn't preserve for his people. The point is, God's word is not only tied to an author that knows the Lord, it's also preserved and shared for the church and by the church. There's not a council that told anyone what they must include. Instead, they received it from people like Peter and Paul, and they understood that those people had known Jesus and been taught by Jesus, and so they treated them with respect and authority. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.27 shows this same kind of attitude. He says, I actually put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. So there's the idea that true scripture is not for a single person. Even the letters that are written to individual people are to be read publicly and shared with the entire church and with neighboring churches all around the ancient world. Not only that, you might wonder, okay, so how did they know who the author was? They didn't have a post service or something like that. And that's where we find letter carriers playing a huge role in ancient culture. And you find many of them named in the New Testament. People like Timothy and Epaphroditus and Titus and Phoebe and Onesimus. They're people who are known by the author and often also known by the recipient. Okay, so imagine you're in First Baptist Church of Ephesus or whatever. Somebody comes rushing in, and, and they've got a letter, and they're saying, hey, this is, this is from the Apostle Paul. And if you have never seen them before in your life, and they don't know any of your friends, how do you know? So very often, ancient letters were carried by people that both parties knew and respected. And so what you find throughout the New Testament, especially in Paul's letters, he will introduce the people who were carrying his letters in the letter And like at the end of Romans, where there's this giant list of names, he is making sure that someone within the community recognizes someone so that they treat the letter with respect because Paul had actually never been to the Roman church. So the culture of having a letter carrier that was well-known and trusted helped people know which letters were genuinely written by people like Paul and Peter. The last thing I'll mention is the church received these letters and treated them as authority and you find them preached and taught. And I've already mentioned, you, you number one, look at authorship as you figure out what should be in the Bible. Number two, you look at what the church used. And so I've already mentioned that writers like Polycarp, Clement, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, uh, and later on people like Augustine, you look at how they quote the writings of Paul. You look at how they quote the Gospels and John's letters. You look at how they quote the book of Hebrews alongside the Old Testament. And these ancient sermons and letters give you a picture of what the New Testament was like. So, number one, authorship. And under authorship, how do you know that authorship? Well, you look at who shared the letter. You look at how the letters are signed. We're going to see that in First Timothy in just a minute. But number two, you look at what the church used. And if the early church used it, you should at least consider that it might be part of the Bible. Number three, you can look at what ancient pastors recommended. So Athanasius of Alexandria, 
He's a great guy, and I wish I could talk about him, but we don't have time. Athanasius of Alexandria wrote an Easter letter in which he listed the 27 books of our New Testament. He said, hey, church, these are the books that we should believe are written by God, and, and we shouldn't add any books to them. Well, his letter comes a little bit late, but it's not the first letter that's like that. Athanasius is just one pastor. There's another pastor by the name of Origen. Origen writes almost 70 years before the Council of Nicaea. And Origen has basically the exact same list. So you find multiple pastors from different times saying, hey guys, these are the books that we believe were written by God for the church. And not only that, there's a little document called the Muratorian Canon. I know they they have such terrible, confusing, hard-to-remember names. The Muratorian Canon, I'd like to pause right here. Do you remember I gave you chocolate at the beginning of this? Okay, we're good, right? (laughs) The Muratorian Canon is from a hundred years before the Council of Nicaea, and it gives you, again, 22 of the books that are in the New Testament. It did take the church some time to agree on this, but the church loved the word and wanted to know, and so they did careful work, and godly pastors collaborated and studied And through the working of the Holy Spirit, we have the Bible that you and I have access to today. You might say, what about those other books? Man, I read in National Geographic that there's a Gospel of Judas. I don't have a lot of time, but I'll say a couple things about them. Number one, even non-Christians believe that those were written hundreds of years after Jesus lived. If you read articles in National Geographic instead of just glancing at the headlines... Those articles will tell you, no, we don't think this is historically accurate. It's just an interesting picture into a small group in the ancient world. And so one of my favorites is the Gospel of Thomas. Guys, if you have questions like, should this be in the Bible? All you have to do is read it. It's hilarious and strange and disturbing. And thank God it's not in the scriptures. He said, what do you mean it's disturbing? I'll I'll tell you one verse at the end. Okay, so the apostles are behaving kind of like the apostles. And they're like, Jesus, this woman, this this Mary Magdalene is hanging out with us. And like, we don't like her. And Jesus says, don't worry, guys. I'm going to make her male so that she can go to heaven with the rest of us. You're like, what? And the reason is they're, they're Gnostics. Gnostics Don't believe that diversity is a good thing. We would hate Gnostics today. Gnostics believe that uniformity is everything. So even the difference between male and female, they don't celebrate it the way the Bible teaches to celebrate it. They hate it. So they say, men are going to heaven, and if God has mercy on women, he'll make them men too. It sounds terrible. And the New Testament community knew that Jesus never said that, And so no pastor included it in the Bible. It shouldn't be there. So if you have more questions about those, it's like, Pastor, what about the Gospel of Mary? We can talk about it later. But they're all like that. They're communities that grabbed a part of Jesus' teaching and said, hey, we want to shape this and make it ours. And they're not faithful representations of Jesus' teaching. They don't come from the apostles. They come from groups that liked part of it but didn't care about it being historical. And they made stuff up. So that's why it's not in our Bible. Now, that whole giant thing was to say that God gives us good gifts so that we appreciate the goodness of his word. And how do you know what his word is? 
The short answer is you can accept this on faith, and if that works for you, God bless you. You are a simple chocolate eater. Do it. If you have questions and doubts and fears and anxieties, let's go as deep as we need to. Let's study and know that this is the word of God that is for us, that blesses us. When it says things that are hard, don't just assume that you can tear it out of the Bible and say, you know, I don't believe that's for me. It doesn't work that way. If this is the word of God and it is all the word of God, we need to accept it as it is. And so in just a couple minutes, I want to encourage you to turn to the book of 1 Timothy. I promise we're only looking at two verses. And I want to show you how this fits in with everything that I've said so far. Paul is giving really just a greeting. He's establishing his authority. So I'm in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. My first point is that this book, 1 Timothy, is a divine message. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Point one, this letter is a divine letter to bless the entire church. Now, if you want to do historical digging like we were doing early, you can see the early Christian writings like First and Second Clement, uh, letters written by that guy I mentioned, Clement of Rome. Guys like Ignatius and Polycarp, they quote from and they allude to First Timothy specifically. Writers from later generations like Irenaeus and Athanasius and Clement and Tertullian, there are two Clements, sorry, there's a Clement of Rome and then there's... So, Uh, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Eusebius, they all clearly regard this book, 1 Timothy, as Pauline, and because Paul wrote it, they believe it should be part of the Bible. And when those ancient pastors quote from 1 Timothy, they aren't treating it like good advice from a friend, they treat it as having the authority of God. They use it to tell people what to do. None of them thought that it only applied to Timothy's day or Timothy's church. And think just for one of my favorite guys is a guy named Augustine. He lives 400 years after Paul and Timothy. 400 years is a crazy long time, okay? America's only like 200 years old, right? And if we look back at the time of our nation's founding 200 years ago, we say, man, thank God that we've changed. We've come such a long way. And in many ways, we have, and I am glad that we've changed. If we change that much in 200 years, think about the separation between Augustine, 450 AD, and Paul, who's writing in like 60 and 70 AD. Augustine doesn't say, you know what, guys, that was 400 years ago. We've evolved, we've changed, we've moved on, we've learned more. We don't really have to do what Paul said to Timothy anymore. No, Augustine, writing 400 years after Paul writes this letter to 1 Timothy, treats this as the word of God and says that it's a blessing for the church, that it will be good for us as we listen to what God says to us. That's just some historical evidence. The reason that the book claims to be divine is Paul is saying he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God. So 
a month ago now, I preached a little biographical sketch of Paul so you would know who wrote this letter, how he was a persecutor of the church, how he hated Jesus and he hated Christians. And then God grabbed his life and turned him around 180 degrees so that he believed Jesus is the Messiah. He is God's son. He is the Savior who died for our sins and rose from the dead. And Paul's hope is that his own sins, which were many, Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. Paul's hope is that his own sins were forgiven by Jesus and his mission was to tell the world that God loved them and is offering them the forgiveness of sins. And he does that with divine authority because of the way God called him and commissioned him to spread this message to the entire church. Now, one of the guys was saying, you know, hey, it seems like he's almost padding his resume. Like, if this is really the Apostle Paul, why is he opening his letter this way? Like, it's like the lady is protesting too much. Like, it, it doesn't make sense. But the reality is this is how every ancient letter would have begun. It's very normal to give your credentials first. And we still do this to this day. So, so I have a master's degree in linguistics. If I want to make a comment about language, whether it's, you know, I'm critiquing someone's grammar or what. and side note, linguists don't care about your grammar. They're weird. But if I'm going to make a comment about language like I just did, I'm going to say, I have a master's degree in linguistics. I paid Oakland University a lot of money. I had my papers graded. I learned things. I studied things. I wrote a giant thesis. I am educated in this area, and so I have authority to speak in this area. And if you buy a book like one of these books, they will do the same thing. They just do it on the back cover now. So they'll say, so-and-so was educated at blah-de-blah and teaches at blah-de-blah and is a pastor. And we do this today. We just don't do it at the front of the letter. We do it on the back of the book. Paul is saying, this is why you ought to listen to my message, because I have been commissioned by God. Verse 14 and 15 shows you the reason he's writing this letter with the authority of an apostle. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Did you catch that? He says, I want you to know how to behave in the church of the living God, not in your church, not in a church, but that every church ought to behave in this particular way. And Paul is writing this letter so that we understand how men and women serve together in the context of a church, how moms and dads raise their kids, all those deeply personal things that make us upset and angry. God has given us a gift in his word in 1 Timothy to help us understand what, how, how can we be blessed? What is the best way? What is the way that we will see the most spiritual fruit as we want to serve the Lord in faithfulness? It's not advice or tips. It's the word of God written by someone chosen by Jesus. Writing with authority, not to be mean or heavy-handed, but to bless God's people. And that leads to my second message. Not only is it a divine message, it's a sweet message. And so I want to end where I began. Okay, I acknowledge there are going to be things in 1 Timothy specifically that are hard for us to wrestle with. I've asked a couple of people to read through the book and say, hey, what should I talk about? What are your questions? What do you not understand? What excites you? What are great things that have already blessed you? And I've gotten some great feedback. Man, we've got some landmines that are coming up in this book. But ultimately, it is a sweet 
message. The word of God will bless you as you read it and as you obey it. And you can see a little taste of that blessing in verse 2. He says to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Think about those, those words for just a minute. Think about grace. Grace is only needed for imperfect people. If you and I were perfect, we wouldn't need it. But the good news is that God loves imperfect people. God loves sinners. God loves failures. He offers forgiveness. That's the meaning of grace. It's his love for you. And the Bible teaches that that God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for our sins so that we could be forgiven. Grace and mercy. Mercy is given to guilty people that deserve punishment. But they escape punishment because God in his love sacrificed his son in our place so that my sins and your sins could be forgiven. And peace. Peace. Not just the absence of conflict, but real joy. So I don't know if, you, if you've ever had the experience of, of maybe hearing your parents fight and they've got a big blow up or something like that. Peace is not the long, awkward silence after the argument ends. Peace is what you enjoy at Thanksgiving and Christmas when the family is gathered around the table and celebrating all of God's good gifts and biblical peace is peace with the maker. Enjoying all of his good gifts like honey and chocolate and family and church and the hope that Jesus will return and fix the broken mess of our world. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ is what is giving Paul the authority to write this letter to us. So what do we do? What do we do? A couple points of application. For those of you who have wrestled with questions like, is this even God's word and, and, and should I treat it with authority? Maybe you're not going to remember anything I said and maybe I said too much. Know that there are good reasons to trust the Bible. Even if you can't remember them, you, you can watch this message again. You can watch better messages than this one online. If you want resources that help you answer this question, I can point you to them. But for this message... Point one of application, all I want you to know, know that there are good reasons you can trust the Bible. Number two, read the Bible for yourself. We're going to be going through the book of 1 Timothy. Maybe that's a book that you want to read and study. Uh, maybe you're new to the Bible and you don't know much about it. I mean, I've been talking about Old Testament, New Testament, and you're like, what's a testament? That's a great question. If you have questions about the Bible, I would love to help you with them. And if you want to begin reading it, I've got some resources that can help you with that. Would you talk to me today? Or if you're streaming online, would you leave a comment on Facebook or shoot our church an email through our website? Let me know if you need help reading the Bible for yourself. I'd love to help you with that. So point two is read the Bible for yourself. If God wrote something to you, it is to your benefit to know what he has said. And I want to strongly encourage you to know it. Point number three of application. If this, if this word is really sweet to us, we need to treat all of the Bible like it is the word of God. 
If it makes you uncomfortable, work hard to understand it. Sometimes the word of God makes us uncomfortable because we just haven't properly understood it. it. It is hard to understand in places. So put in the work to understand it. Pray and ask for help. You know, you can talk to the author at any time. He will help you. So pray as you read it. Number four, most importantly, if you forget everything else I've said, rest in the grace, mercy, and peace that is proclaimed throughout this entire book. The Bible shows you that God loves you. He has loved you in giving you his son, Jesus Christ. Believe in what Jesus has done for you. Trust in the forgiveness of sins and know the peace of God in a personal way. Would you pray with me? Father, we do praise you that you have not been silent. Lord, when we sinned, you you didn't give us the silent treatment, but you sent prophets and you sent your son and you sent apostles with a message of forgiveness and love. We praise you for your great patience and love. Father, I pray that you'd open our hearts to receive your word. Let us hope in your promises of forgiveness. Let us rest in your proclamations of love. I pray this in Jesus' name.